Chapter 9. The South Country. With the removal truck loaded and the children assured that the drivers would feed the cat, the dog and the ducks tucked comfortably in a side compartment, not all together of course, we turned the A40 southwards towards a new challenge. Our call was for two years, but the sceptics said an evangelist couldn't pastor a church for that long. In Frank's mind, there was no conflict. He'd had sufficient pastoral experience to blend the two. He was totally convinced that every evangelist needed a church base. Besides, he knew that two years would not be long enough to establish the evangelistic centre of the vision. We faced the 13th of December... 1959 with a real sense of anticipation. The Red Cross Hall used for the services was tucked away between more imposing buildings down an unimportant side street. It was without windows and short on paint, but 60 people gathered in our first service to worship God. Old people were plentiful. Young folk were very few, but the spirit of worship and praise gladdened Frank's heart. Suddenly, a high-pitched scream shattered the harmony of worship. Frank stood with mouth agape, and I jumped three inches off the seat. Granny Diamond was praising God again. The rest of the congregation worshipped on undisturbed. We discovered that this diminutive 70-year-old worked up to this pitch every Sunday morning, staying there till she ran out of breath. The children dubbed her the local fire engine, Here was one problem we would need to solve. Any visitor coming to the meeting would be put off forever. But Granny Diamond proved to be one of the greatest prayers in the church. In fact, the old folk were the ones who undergirded the work by their dedication to prayer. To them must go the credit of much of what happened in the future. Christmas broke into an already busy schedule. For the first time, Frank had decided we should go to the annual Christmas camp and national business conference. The business sessions held in the afternoons were enough to deter any newcomer. Pastors sat with a copy of the Constitution on their knees and their tongues ready to argue irrelevant points. For five days, the delegates wrangled over what Frank decided was inconsequential to the lives of the people. For a whole week, they argued and there was only 13 churches represented. Delegates were asked to nominate men, the Executive Council, the controlling body of the Assemblies of God. Frank was amazed that someone should nominate him. Unknown, though he thought himself to be, he decided to let his name stand. He was surprised to be elected. Then the feeling was replaced by a sense that God would use him to bring the movement into greater evangelism than it was pursuing. He would accomplish more than that. God would use him to release the fellowship into freedom in praise and worship. He determined that he would also work towards getting the business sessions streamlined so that less time would be taken up with unnecessary argument. His opportunity came when he was appointed superintendent years later. This Half-Irishman was a fighter, making life uncomfortable for some members of the executive in the cause of progress and freedom. Once or twice he was known to walk out of an executive meeting to prove a point. Following Frank's election, Ray Bloomfield wrote once more, So now you are on the executive of the Assemblies of God. That is wonderful. Push for real old-time Pentecost and refuse to settle for less. Remember God's desire is signs, wonders and miracles in all our churches, Frank. 
Keep preaching deliverance and love. If you want to see Christ glorified and people set free, you will have to preach the power-packed message of deliverance from sin, sickness and disease. Lead the people out of the muck and the mire. Jesus is the way out and the way in. Praise him. Sometimes Frank wondered if the movement could revive. Yet when pastors of independent churches tried to persuade him to also go independent, the awareness that God had some special purpose for the Assemblies of God kept him where he was. The antagonism towards these independent groups by some of his fellow ministers left Frank puzzled. How can you have fellowship with pipe-smoking ministers in their fraternity when you will not associate with born-again men from other Pentecostal streams, he'd asked them. Many of those ministers are not even Christians. There seemed to be no satisfactory reply. He is still puzzled by the narrowness of such a point of view. Although the work of the executive would require much time, Frank's main vision was still the church. At the February board meeting, Frank presented his vision for the Lower Hutt, a city of 85,000. If we are to make an impact on Lower Hutt by reaching the people for whom Christ died, we must get out of the Red Cross Hall, he told them. We must go to where the people are. I've been asking God for direction and I feel we must take the town hall for a crusade. The men's eyes popped wide open and they usually... The kosherer's tongues remained silent for a full two minutes. One man spoke at last. Take the town hall. That seat's 1,200. Where will the money come from? Another asked. Frank knew he had to bring them to the point where they shared his vision. Without that, there could be no success. Seed thoughts dropped into the discussion, took root until the whole board agreed to fully support the plan. They began to pray and organise the church to work as one body in this major crusade. Our limited financial resources were stretched to the limit as we did everything humanly possible to let people know we'd be in the town hall. A nine by six foot hoarding appeared on our front lawn where everyone on passing trains could see it. Motorists stopped to read it, including the city council inspector. He banged loudly on the front door one afternoon. You are not permitted to erect hoardings in residential areas, he told Frank. You'll have to take it down. I will, he assured the inspector. I didn't realise it was illegal. Sometimes Frank Houston is slow to act and the crusade was over before he removed it. The night of the first meeting, the caretaker at the hall said, I don't suppose you'll be expecting many tonight. People don't come to religious meetings these days. We'll see. Frank was non-committal, but he did confess to some inner doubts as he watched to see if any new people came in. They did, 800 of them, enough to fill the ground floor. When the invitation was given, a young man rushed down the aisle and up the steps to the platform in his eagerness to find God. He was followed by 22 others. A brethren boy was healed of a severe back complaint. The people's faith was extended as they saw the possibilities of evangelism. You are welcome to come to a study with the Holy Spirit in the Red Cross Hall on Wednesday nights, Frank announced. Many did come and stayed to become members of the church. Four weeks later, our congregation was up to 90. The treasurer scowled as he saw our bank balance going into the red. Taking it big for God, Frank called it. You see, people in churches dry up and become narrow. 
bound by miserable concepts which stop them going out where the people are with initiative and boldness, he said. The command to evangelize is already there, and you don't need to have any special guidance from God to do it. Once the crusade was over, the treasurer breathed freely again. The bank balance had turned black. The meetings had aroused considerable interest in the baptism of the Holy Spirit amongst other churches. A searching group of young people from the Baptist church asked to come to the house for a discussion on the subject. You will be welcome, Frank assured them. When did you want to come? Tonight. Fine, I'm looking forward to meeting you. Eight young people hungry for God asked questions for two hours before Frank prayed for them. The next Sunday morning, they occupied the front row in the morning service. Ah, I must turn down the service this morning so as not to offend the Baptists, Frank thought. I'll sit with Granny Diamond to keep her quiet, I offered. That morning, the spontaneity of praise carried Frank into the heavenlies so that he forgot about those young people on the front row and I couldn't silence Granny. Suddenly, he remembered, what about the Baptists? They'll really be upset. Frank opened his eyes. They stood with hands raised, praising God as loudly as the Pentecostals. There would be misunderstanding because of such incidents. Those young people didn't leave their church, but others did. Some Christians accused us of sheep stealing. We don't steal sheep, we grow grass, Frank answered the critics. Frank found an assistant when he had a rare bout of sickness. Margaret Skilleter, the church secretary, suggested asking Trevor Chandler, a former Baptist, if he'd preach in the emergency. I'd be glad to, he told Margaret. Trevor found a new church home and Frank had a man loyal and skilled to lead the church without missing a beat when he travelled. Soon the hall we used was uncomfortably full. It was unwise to go out and then return during a meeting for the heat and smells were overpowering. We needed a building of our own, so it had to be central and near transportation. Stan Carter, a board member, walked door to door calling on property owners in an area suitable for the church. He found a property with the correct zoning and a price we could afford. Minus 5000 that's $10,000. We bought it. There was some cash in the bank, but the rest was a step of faith. An architect worked on plans which the council passed without any problems. We were ready to demolish the old house on the site when the council called a halt. You can't build on that land. We want to put a street through there. We'll buy it for £7, $14,000, sold. £2,000 wasn't a bad profit in six months, but now we had to find another site. God, what are you doing? Hadn't he made a whole scheme possible? Kate Wilmshurst, one of our prayer warriors, told Frank of a vision she'd have. We were worshipping in the old Commonwealth Covenant Church. That seemed an extreme idea, for that church would never sell to us. Our membership included a number of folk they had excommunicated, and that didn't make them very friendly. It was a big building right at the gateway of the city. Then Charlie Wilmshurst discovered that the city council had bought it for road widening but had changed their plans. They had offered it to the Salvation Army. Charlie Wilms 
Hearst, a former Salvationist, was sure the army would turn it down, as it wasn't suited to their purposes. Within two days, he phoned with the news that the army had declined the offer. Immediately, Frank contacted the town clerk. I hear the Commonwealth Covenant Church is for sale. Is that right? He asked. Are you interested? Yes, I am. I was about to lodge an advertisement in the newspaper as you phoned. I'll hold it until you have seen the property, the town clerk said. Frank didn't waste any time in looking over the church and the hostel which which went with it. This will suit us perfectly. How much do you want for it? We will not accept less than $60,000, the town clerk replied. Can I have the keys over the weekend to show my congregation? Frank would hardly contain his excitement. There had been no time to consult the church board, nor did he want to for the moment. He'd come to feel that God never works through committees. He chooses a man, though the man may need committees to help him. Besides, two of the board members had suffered at the hands of this church. Would it hold too many painful memories for Clary, Potbury and Stan Carter? That Friday night, the church was engaged in a half night of prayer. When it was well underway, Frank tapped these board members on the shoulder. Bring your wives into the back room. I want to show you something. Frank held the keys in front of the men. Guess what these are? Well, what are they? The keys to the Commonwealth Covenant Church. It's for sale and I believe God wants us to buy it. The two men looked at each other. Only last night we discussed how wonderful it would be to occupy our old church. It was built for the glory of God, Stan said. Let us leave the prayer meeting to the Holy Spirit and go round to look at it, Frank said. As they stood in the building, tears coursed down the cheeks of both men as they realised that God was giving them the opportunity to regain the building they had sacrificed so much to build. Frank felt the first fence had been cleared. But there were other people with painful memories of the place. How would they react? Frank told the congregation at the end of the morning service the next Sunday, inviting them all to come and see the property. He felt a little like Joshua leading his army around the city walls as we marched 120 strong over the bridge leading to the building. It nestled on the river bank across from the main shopping district, an excellent position. A sense of excitement pervaded our little group as we stood in the empty church praising God. It seemed so large, but we wanted it. We prayed that all obstacles would fall before us, mainly the $60,000. Old Brother Moke knelt at the altar, letting his tears fall on a spot sacred to him before excommunication had forced him from fellowship in this place. Sister Wilmshurst shook as she praised God for her vision and its complete fulfilment. Frank saw his evangelistic center and I saw engagement and wedding rings and other forms of sacrificial giving which had made the building possible in the first place. We claimed it for our own, knowing it would be a challenge for our faith. Frank phoned the mayor on Monday. We'll take the church, he said. You had better make an appointment to come and see me, the mayor said. He was an astute businessman. It will cost you $60,000. Do you have that much money? The mayor asked. Yes, of course we do. Frank didn't tell him it was still in the bank of heaven. He believed God had shown him the city council would carry the finance themselves. We will probably have to call tenders as it's public money. 
You can do what you like, but we will win the tender. How can you know that? The mayor looked astonished. We know that God has given us the building, so anything you do is by the way. The mayor laughed. Frank was leaving for America a few days later. Before his departure, he met the mayor getting into his car in the town. Mr. Mayor, what are you doing about our church property? Frank asked him. There is a council meeting tomorrow night and I will see what I can do. They offered us the building for $60,000. Some of the board members wanted to accept their offer, but Frank knew God had said pay $55,000 and that was what he offered them. They accepted. With interest-free loans from church members as well as some gifts, our finances stood at $28,000. With that amount of money in hand, we felt the finance shouldn't be hard to raise. Frank left for the States not knowing where we'd get the rest of the money. We didn't count on the government's credit squeeze imposed at that moment. No one would lend us the money. Frank rested in the word of God. While we were trying to raise the finance, the council had allowed us to furnish and prepare the building for our opening. We'd been able to buy an organ the Seventh-day Adventists had ordered but couldn't pay for. Frank didn't tell them we had a church we couldn't pay for. When we had to tell the council the money was not forthcoming, they were in a predicament. If what they had done became known, there would be a public outcry. If they evicted us, the same thing would happen. They carried the finance for five years. We had the centre. Now we needed 500 people to fill it. The whole project was a faith venture and to meet it, wisdom from God was needed. Had this been simply mental assent to an idea, it would have been a very risky business. Faith is taken hold of the revealed will of God before it ever happens and believing it into manifestation. A revelation from God, a rima out of Logos, Frank told his people. Thus, there was confidence and action in the steps they took. God did not have to be talked into anything. Frank launched into evangelism. He'd hold some tent crusades. They were the most fruitful, but not without their problems. There were Wellingtons and Torridor scales and vandals who drove their cars into the tent doorway during a meeting. None of these things stopped people flocking to the meetings from the beginning. Whole families were saved. For a week, a woman living on the hillside listened to the singing drifting up to her. One night, she dropped her knitting on the table and reached for her coat. I can't stand it any longer. I'm going down to that meeting, she told her husband. That night, Mrs. James found peace in Jesus, while I found an angel who administered to the pastor's family by doing the ironing every week for some years. But the devil actively stirred up trouble by inciting men whose wives had been converted. They threatened to burn down the tent. Others determined to stop the meetings by complaining to the authorities about excessive noise. Neither stopped the crusade nor prevented God drawing sinners to himself. Our gains were considerable. Now the roles of evangelist, pastor and teacher became intertwined in a perfect balance so that new people became disciples established in the faith. Evangelism and teaching would always be Frank's aim. One without the other is a lopsided gospel making people prone to deception and a church with stunted growth, he'd say. 
People can become self-centered, always wanting to get and never giving anything to God. Pastoring new people meant answering some difficult questions. Should my wife and I separate now that we are Christians? Keith Hamilton asked. This was a thorny one requiring a search of the Bible, consultations with other ministers and reading up on some of the old authorities on the subject. Research led to another question. Was divorce the only sin God did not forgive? Frank wrestled with the problem by much prayer until he felt God had given him clear direction. Are you happily married? Frank asked Keith. Yes, we are. Then why break up a second marriage with all its attendant pain for both you and your family when nothing can be achieved by it? But isn't it living in adultery to be married to a divorced person? Keith wanted desperately to do the right thing at whatever cost. Did not God blot out all your sin when you committed your life to him? Is divorce the unpardonable sin? I don't think you should leave your wife, but you must make the final decision, Frank told him. Keith decided that God did not want him to divide his family. This question would finally become a major debate as more divorced persons came into the church. Odd how a woman strongly opposed to remarriage sat beside this couple for some years, taking communion with them without objection, yet left the church when Frank officiated at the wedding of another divorced person. The difference? She didn't know divorce had been involved in the first situation. Frank came to the conclusion that each case must be decided on its own merits in the light of our understanding of what God was saying. That decision had a price tag we would only discover some years further along the way when divorce hit our own family. This wasn't the only problem which needed solving. Increasingly, Frank became aware that the system for electing the church board had many shortcomings. Some members actively campaigned for election. The families of others suddenly began appearing in church every Sunday. Frank realised that the bylaws required a person to have attended the meetings regularly for eight weeks to be eligible to vote at the annual meetings. When a new member asked how she should vote, she really didn't know any of the men nominated. Frank knew why he had to work with some who was unsuitable for the task. Careful study of the Bible suggested a more scriptural way. Sunday morning sermons touched on church government as Frank taught the principles of appointment instead of elections. Before the annual general meeting, Frank tactfully approached each board member and his wife to explain the proposed changes. At the annual meeting, he presented the proposal to the members as they had to vote on the changes. If you pass the proposal, you must realise this will be the last vote you will have, he told them. They passed the motion with an overwhelming yes. He felt that he should select the board himself. Who knew better the type of men needed to advance the work and handle the business affairs of the church? Not yes men, but fellows who knew God, men who shared his vision and would not sit across the table at every board meeting, glaring at the pastor and opposing every move he suggested. Harmony was an essential ingredient for success. The congregation didn't look for acquired qualities. They voted for their friends or by guesswork. No wonder the support needed wasn't always forthcoming. 
One tried to get the members to vote on our leadership at an annual meeting when it wasn't even on the agenda. This system of hiring and firing pastors, which hurt so many men of God, was, to Frank, as unscriptural as any system could be. We are not here to fight each other. Our enemy is the devil, Frank declared. Only one felt that he could not accept the change. Frank regretted his resignation, for he was a good man, but he was determined the new way was for the best. The pastor will become a dictator in this situation. The accusation was levelled at Frank. The Executive Council is a church's security, Frank assured them. Anyone with just cause for complaint can go to them, and if need be, they can take whatever action they deem necessary. The Executive Council was not a body of men who agreed on everything, but they were in agreement when they needed a new superintendent. Ralph Reed, the current superintendent, had accepted a call to a church in Australia. He was a gifted organiser who had given strong leadership to the movement in New Zealand. The Lower Hutt Church wondered anxiously who could replace him. Our board offered to pay his salary if he'd stay as superintendent in a full-time capacity. Ralph felt that would be out of the will of God. Frank, now assistant superintendent, found himself elevated to the position. Neither of us wanted that. There was already so much to do in the ministry, but we yielded to what was assuredly the purpose of God. We knelt in dedication while Ralph Reed prayed for us with laying on of hands. Both of us were aware of a special sense of God's calling into a phase of a ministry which would release the fellowship into a period of growth. It grew from 15 to 40 churches as the bonds of traditionalism were broken by spontaneous praise and worship, often accompanied by dancing. Frank, if you start dancing in this church, I'm leaving, Trevor Chandler declared. Sylvia, his wife, wasn't sure. Trevor had been totally loyal to Frank during his years of us and the thought that he might leave because of such an issue was unbearable. Who could lead the church in Frank's absences like Trevor? You know, Frank, with Trevor at the helm, everything continues as though you were here, I'd often say. The dancing broke out one Sunday when Trevor was away preaching. Sylvia told him about it on his return. That's it. I'm leaving. Just a minute, Sylvia said calmly. I started it. There was no settling down in the church, for now the Holy Spirit told Frank to establish a Bible school to fill the gap left by the closing of the Assemblies of God College. The ministry in New Zealand was suffering from a lack of trained people. It would also be part of the vision to reach the world. Lord, give me 100 men, 100 men dedicated to you at whatever the cost. Then we will make a real impact for the kingdom. The aim of the college would be to train young people to evangelise the world. Academic excellence would be important but secondary to the development of their spiritual lives. No way must the fire of the spirit be doused, although education must not be despised. Students came from Samoa, Fiji, Indonesia, Australia and Sri Lanka. They returned to those countries and more. These are your spiritual sons the spirit whispered. 
They have laid aside fears and frustrations for the hopes and challenges of faith, but they know God is their partner, Frank declared. God is faithful. Some of the students shared the thrilling experience of a two-week crusade, which was stretched into six, in the city of Hamilton, 18 miles south of Auckland. Praying for people until the sun came up was a common feature of this crusade as multitudes came for prayer. A desire for, for a similar ministry was birthed within them, but they had to find their own. Students from other cultures not only received training, but kept alive the church's vision for missions. Local ethnic churches helped as well. The Samoan brethren organised an event to betray life on their island. Samoan songs and dances had the congregation clapping and swaying. One song in particular stirred the people until they praised and worshipped God. The Samoans laughed. Max Rasmussen, the group's leader, didn't have the heart to tell the people the meaning of the words. Minai, 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 pay o se toy. Wriggle, wriggle, wriggle like a worm. It was an old Samoan dancing song. It, all this was a preparation for ministry reaching from the South Country to God's sheep, which were not of this fold. Frank would be amazed as God sent him to other cultures.